All right, given everybody the grace period, so now we get a, now we have to start. Um, well, welcome back. It's uh, it's been a few weeks since we've had a had a uh, class, and we're gonna do just um, three weeks on this, um, how to study or how to understand and apply the Bible is what we're calling it, but basically giving some basic tools to to you for your Bible reading to get as much out of it as. Um, as you're able to, and you can, you know, you can dive way deeper than what we're going to do in the next three weeks, but uh, I want to help you get some basic tools. So I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump into the, the material here and um, see where we go from there. Uh, Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be back and um, walk through the, um, just the, the study of your word and, and what you've uh, given to us to know you better and to uh, meet Jesus in a saving way. And we pray that you would point us in the direction we, we need tonight. And we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, like I said, this is going to be um, not a incredibly in-depth thing because most people don't want that or need that. Um, so we're not going to be talking about Greek or Hebrew. We're not going to be talking about crazy, you know, linguistic stuff. Uh, really just want to take you through uh, some basic tools for how to read and understand and apply the Bible in your lives. Um, it's it's uh, one of the most important things we can do as Christians to grow in our faith is to read the Bible and to read it in a way that actually impacts uh, our hearts and our, our wills and um, it is God's tool in our lives. Um, so tonight what I want to do is uh, we're not going to get into the specifics on how quite yet. That's going to be the next two weeks. I will give you some of the, the how-to stuff um, in the next couple weeks. But I, I want to start with a more foundational thing tonight, which I think it's important to start at the at the bottom and work our way up. So um, the, the main question I want to address tonight is what is the Bible? And, and that might seem like a really basic question, um, and it is, but in a sense, I think if we don't understand what we're dealing with on the, on the foundational level of opening up that book or opening up that app on our phones or however it is that we read our Bibles, um, coming to that, those words, like what are we actually dealing with? Uh, and, and that'll help us on the trajectory of... Uh, what to do with it once we, once we start getting into it. So I want to start with what the Bible is not, because I think there's some, some pretty big misconceptions on the Bible uh, in general. One of those misconceptions is, I think uh, most Christians, many Christians at least, and almost certainly every non-Christian that you talk to believes or would believe that the Bible is just a book of morals, uh, rules or religious uh, principles, um, and that we're called to obey those things. That it's just, if you're a Christian, at least you would feel that you're called to obey it. Uh, if you're not a Christian, I guess you would feel like you're called to just do with it whatever you want. But um, most people approach the Bible in this way, that it's going to open it up. I'm just going to see what the rules are. I'm going to try to follow those rules and do my best to make my way to heaven. If I follow these rules a little bit better than I don't, hopefully the balance, in the balance, it'll come out on my, in my favor and I'll be, I'll be fine. Um, yeah, that's just not what the Bible is. The Bible's not fundamentally a book of rules. Now, there are, of course, rules and laws and expectations within the Bible, of course. Uh, you have four out of the first five books of, of the Old Testament um, the first, the first one doesn't have as many rules, but the ones after that become what we call the law. And so you read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you get just stacks and stacks and stacks of rules. And so it's very easy for us to, to see the Bible in that way, especially if we make an honest attempt to start to read it. And we start at the beginning and then we just try to plow through, you know, Genesis has some interesting stories, but then once you get past that and the maybe the first half of Exodus, most people are just gone right at that point because it just becomes very uh, tedious. So we have to get beyond that. Uh, the Bible has rules. We are called to submit to the Lordship of Christ, of course, 
but that's not what the Bible fundamentally is. Um, sometimes you, you also hear uh, along this line people using the Bible or talking about the Bible like it's a instruction book or a manual or a map to follow. That's not completely wrong, right? It's not completely wrong to use those analogies, but it's an incomplete understanding of the Bible. The Bible shouldn't just be reduced to a guidebook for your life. Again, that just it just kind of makes the Bible um, something that it fundamentally isn't, which is just, all right, just tell me how to live. Tell me how to, you know, bunker down here and, and do my best. And, um, and that's just not what it is. So we need to be a little bit more precise than that. Another common view uh, that, that we hear people talk about with the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is that it's a book of heroes, um, uh, you know, a chronicling of stories about people, almost treating them like fairy tales or fables, and that those people are meant to show us how to live or how to imitate their lives. So you hear people say this a lot in certain circles of Christianity, that, that we should be brave the way David was brave when he approached Goliath, and we should lead people the way Moses led people, or we should be wise like Solomon, right? You, you see these biblical characters, and there are certainly positive things about each of them, uh, but there's also a lot of bad things about each of them, too. Um, the Bible is full of people who are sinful and therefore do really dumb things and uh, we, even really evil things. Um, and so I don't know that that's a very helpful way to look at the Bible, that it's, oh, okay, this is a collection of heroes. We got to follow them, look at their example. You know, I got to conquer my Goliath, and so I've got to approach it the way David did. You know, these kind of things are not super helpful. Um, David and Moses were murderers, okay? So we don't want to follow that example. Solomon was, we'd call him a sexual deviant today. He had a 1,000 mistresses and 300 wives and uh, that's that's just not these are not all like good stories. They're not all good models of living life. Uh, they're certainly a mixed bag, of course, with everybody in the in the scriptures. Um, but while there's many stories about uh, men and women who do some good things and make some big mistakes on in the process, um, there's other stories of people who sincerely try and fail. Uh, but there's only one person in the story who's worthy of following. And, uh, of course, that's Jesus Christ. And that really is the whole point. Um, and one, one of the interesting things is that the, the show The Simpsons captured this really well. Uh, years and years ago, Homer Simpson's, uh, it's an opening scene in the, in the episode, and he's reading the Bible for some reason. I don't exactly know why he's reading the Bible. But the kids come up and uh, ask him to take them to the zoo or something. And he's like, oh, that's just so much money. I, I already spent $15 on this book. And it's, I think he said, it's such a preachy book. Everyone in this book is a sinner, except this one guy. And, and that was just really insightful and true and actually right. So good job, Simpsons, for figuring that out. There is one person in the Bible who is um, not a sinner. But when we approach the Bible as just this book of heroes to emulate, we're, we're really missing the point. So uh, if the Bible's not merely this book of morals or rules or it's not merely a book of heroes for us to emulate, then what is it? Well, here's a, just a very basic definition of the Bible. It's not very technical necessarily, but I think it gets at the heart of uh, what the Bible is. Um, the Bible is a God-inspired, authoritative, true story of God's mission to save sinful people for his own glory through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the Bible is God-inspired, meaning it is from God. It was written by people by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if we don't start there, we're, we have no reason to listen to the Bible. We have no reason to read the Bible. We have no reason for this class to teach you how to understand the Bible in any way. Because it's not, if it's just a person's opinion or a collection of people's opinion, then what's, what's the real heart there? Um, so it's a God-inspired book. The Bible affirms this. The Bible uh, demonstrates it. It's the reality of it throughout uh, being written by numerous authors throughout centuries and centuries of time 
collection of lots of different books that all uh, cohere and come together and and are clearly uh, after you know God's heart. So they, they, it's a God-inspired book. It's also an authoritative book. We have to read it to submit our lives to it. That's the that's the heart of this. We need to read the Bible and actually do what it says um, because it's from God and he's telling us how he intends for his world to work. It's a, it's a collection of stories, uh, although they're true stories. So don't let the word story scare you. I'm not using that in a, in a way that su- to suggest it's fictional. It's not fictional. Um, but they, it is recounting events and people and and his, histories and all kinds of things um, throughout uh, the, the from the creation of the world through the recreation of the world. So it is a collection of stories written over centuries, and uh, but it's all true. And the fundamental point of the Bible is to give us this synopsis that God is on a mission to save sinful people uh, for His own glory through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So uh, I think it's really important for us to approach the scriptures first and foremost in that, in that way. If we don't come at the Bible with the big picture of what it is, uh, we're not going to be able to understand it or rightly apply it. If we just try to take it piecemeal or take it in little bits and, and pieces here and there, we're going to miss the whole point. And and so the, the, the pieces all fit together to create one whole, which is the story of God's mission to save sinful people for his glory through the finished work of Christ. So, so what I want to do tonight is kind of walk us through uh, the big overarching uh, message of the Bible. What is the story of the Bible? Um, and, and I've got it broken down into five chapters. And I think, and this is just going to be a quick summary of each of these chapters. We're not going to dive super deep into any of them. Um, But I think by starting here, starting with the foundation of what the Bible is, what the big picture of the Bible is, it's going to help us actually approach it as we study it, as we learn uh, and want to learn more of it. We need to understand the, the whole of what it's getting at so that we can approach the smaller pieces of it and go, okay, where does this fit into the bigger story? So what are the chapters? Uh, the first chapter is creation. And this uh, is probably not going to shock any of you, um, but the start of the Bible, the opening sentence of the Bible, sets the stage for our whole understanding of the world around us. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That, that's where the Bible starts is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this, this is a reality that we're seeing in this passage. Uh, God is there. If God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, no one created God. God is an eternal being who has always existed, uh, will always exist from eternity past to eternity future. We don't know how that's possible in our finite minds, but, but that is the reality of the Bible, that God is there in the beginning. God is before the beginning. No one created God. What instead happened is that he created everything, the heavens and the earth. And as you continue to read Genesis 1, you, you learn uh, that, that God simply speaks the world into existence out of nothing. He didn't have to use uh, already existing materials, which is good because there weren't any. So he had to make everything out of nothing. And as the creator, uh, we're told that God has complete authority over all that exists He created the world to reflect his wisdom and his beauty. And out of all of that God has made, we're told that the masterpiece of his creation was humanity. Human beings are the only thing in the the entire created world from the scriptures that are said to be made in the image of God. So we have, as human beings, we have a unique place in the creation order. And that, that reality continues to carry through the rest of the Bible. What we see from there is that as the image bearers uh, of God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, were given a mission. They were placed in a garden. They were given a mission to take care of the world, to rule over creation under the authority of God, of course. And in essence, God made them 
little kings and queen on earth, and they were made, they were made to rule it uh, lovingly as God would have them. They were meant to uh, care for it and keep it and multiply and fill it. God gives them that commission. He places them in the garden, the sanctuary on earth, and they served as priests essentially in that sanctuary, maintaining or were meant to maintain the purity of God's world. Um, through humanity, God intends to mediate his presence in the world. God, God sends uh, himself uh, to them and he has a relationship with them, but he creates them to represent him on the earth. We also see in the first chapter of the Bible that God does not design us to live as isolated beings. He made us to be in community with each other. He created male and female. He created a world with people in it, not just one lone person. Adam was there for a while by himself and found out that there's no one suitable for him in the world. And he, he probably felt a, a sense of loneliness there. So God creates a woman for, for him and to be his helper and to uh, be his companion and to help rule the world together in that way. And um, he creates the institution of marriage through that. And then ultimately through that, uh, more human beings become populating on the earth. Um, and so there's obviously the marriage relationship that's in view here. But really the, the picture is that God designs human beings to display his perfect uh, perfections rather more fully together than any one individual possibly could. We, we are better uh, together collectively as a, as a group of people with diversity and, and different mentalities and uh, coming at it from the same center of, of Christ, ideally. Um, but that's how God designed his world to operate. Okay, so that, that's chapter one. And that actually is only the first two chapters of the Bible. So it's a pretty short <laughs> chapter. You read chapters one and two, and it's all good. Uh, but then you get to chapter two of my breakdown here, right? This is, this is just how I'm articulating it. Um, the second chapter in the Bible is crisis. And these are all C's, so just hang in there. I am a pastor after all. I've got to do the alliteration. Uh, the crisis. Um, so the, this peaceful picture of Genesis 1 and 2 ends very quickly and rather abruptly in Genesis chapter 3. So in, back in Genesis 2, God warns Adam and Eve that if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was one tree in the middle of the garden or in the garden somewhere. I think it was in the middle. Um, and he said, if you eat from this particular tree, you can eat from every other tree. There's no problem. But this one tree is off limits. And if they eat it, they will surely die. And so they're given that one command. And they had free reign at everything else. So what we learn is that Satan, who is an angel that had fallen through pride and was cast out of heaven, masquerades as a serpent, enters the garden, convinces Adam and Eve to rebel against God by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he promised them that if they did this, they would be like God. They would know good and evil. They would have the whole picture. But instead of becoming like God, as was promised uh, Adam and Eve actually experiences uh, experience the shame and guilt of disobeying their creator. And instead of harmony with God and each other, guilt and shame enter into that relationship. Instead of running to God, they hide from him instead. So that's the trajectory of Genesis uh, 3. Eventually, God comes down and... Um, discusses this uh, issue with them. And when he confronts them, um, he does announce judgment. He announces judgment on the serpent uh, and that he's cursed to crawl and eat dust. Um, but more importantly, God in verse 15 of chapter three makes a promise that Adam and Eve were there to hear. And he says it to the serpent, but he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Genesis 3.15 is a very, very important verse in the, in the scriptures, because it's the first verse 
that promises us the gospel. It, it gives us the first glimpse in the brokenness of all the things that happened through sin, the, the relational break that happened between Adam and Eve and God and them and the, the, the reality of the world itself being uh, now difficult. Now we're told we're going to have to get food by the sweat of our brow and things are going to be difficult for us to, to work the land. And we're told that there's going to be pain and childbearing and there's all the things that come from this. But in the midst of all of that, there's a promise that, that there will be an offspring of, of Eve's who will have uh, his heel bruised, but in the process will crush the head of the serpent. And so that's where we, we see the first glimpse of hope in this. I don't think Adam and Eve uh, knew how long it would take probably for this to all come to fruition, but there's the promise. So judgment is not the final word. Ultimately, for Adam and Eve, uh, certainly God had every right to destroy them, to end everything right there. Um, but instead, God shows them mercy. He sacrifices some animals to use, uh, to clothe the man and the woman. He makes them, God himself makes their clothes for them. He sends them out of the garden, yes, um, but what he's doing as he clothes them is he symbolically is covering their sin. He's showing what he will do down the road. And as we get into the New Testament, we see this, this theme of putting off clothes that are filthy and putting on clothes that are clean and to, to represent that purity that we have in the righteousness of Christ. So this is the first kind of glimpse of that. But obviously the damage to creation has been done. Their sin opens up the floodgates of death and it ultimately ravages creation leaving it a pale uh, reflection of its original glory. So from that point forward, uh, that's chapter 3. And then chapter 4 of Genesis, you have uh, Cain and Abel, the first two children of Adam and Eve, who, are, uh, who ultimately uh, Cain murders Abel. So you have the first murder happen in, within a chapter of uh, after sin enters the world. Chapter 5 records a genealogy of this person had these kids and they lived this old and then they died and it just reinforces how much everybody is dying now that sin has entered the world. And you get to chapter six and that's where you get into the Noah story where uh, death spreads throughout creation like a wildfire and eventually the, the corruption on earth gets so bad that God brings judgment in the form of a flood and wipes out the entire human race with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals, um, and even though God scrubs the earth clean, we know the flood doesn't change the human heart. The inclinations it has towards sin and evil are still there, and not long after they get out of the ark, um, they show themselves to be just like Adam, and they disobey God in, their, in his purpose for them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This ultimately leads to the culmination of Humanity gathering in the city of Babel, where uh, they build a tower, and the tower is meant to get them all the way to heaven. It was man's uh, pride, believing that if we just build a structure tall enough, we can get to God. And the Bible tells us that God came down to look at the tower. So that tells you something. That was there's some really neat things that you can read in the scriptures. It's like comes down just to sort of mock this whole thing, this whole exercise of, you know, let's build a tower to the heavens. Well, God ends up scattering the people, changing their languages, uh, making their, their efforts futile to, to be all together as one humanity. And now you have the spread of people around the world. So chapter two ends uh, basically in um, Genesis 11, um, more or less. And it is, um, it's bleak. It's bleak. It, it's not looking good. But God is just getting started, which is good. Uh, and so that gets us to chapter 3, which I'm going to call covenants. As we continue through the Old Testament, what we have is a series of covenants. And this is meant to bring about the promised Savior that was promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 to bring that promised Savior into the world. God makes a series of covenants with humanity. 
So what's a covenant? Well, a covenant is very basically a solemn commitment that God makes with a specific person or a group of people uh, to do and or to be something for them. So as part of that commitment, God makes promises and places himself under an oath to fulfill them. Um, there are co- hints of a covenant with Adam. Uh, some, some theologians argue whether there was a covenant made with Adam. I tend to think there was, but uh, we, we won't deal with that too much right now. There was definitely a covenant that God made with Noah. Um, that was the covenant to not flood the earth again and destroy it entirely. But our starting point for the sake of the, the big story of the Bible is with a man named Abram. Uh, who later gets renamed Abraham, and his wife, Sarai, who is barren and has no children, which is a crucial part of the story. Uh, Later, she's renamed Sarah. And it seems to come out of absolutely nowhere. Like, you you have the Tower of Babel story, and then just literally out of nowhere, chapter 12, like, turns, and God starts talking to this guy named Abram. If you look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it's, here's what it says. I got it up on the screen. But it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is what is the beginning of what's called the Abrahamic covenant. And, and God ultimately seals this covenant with uh, the, the killing of animals. Uh, there needs to be a shedding of blood for the covenant to have teeth you know, to it. Um, and that was just the way it was back, way back then. Um, but here's what's happening. God is, God is revealing to us how he's going to bring about this promised Savior. That he's going to bring this Savior through... Abraham. He's going to make Abraham into a great nation. He's going to bless this nation. Uh, He's going to, he's picking out this man to start a family that grows and grows into this great nation. Uh, From all the people on the earth, he, he singles out Abraham for this. Through Abraham's line, God's going to fulfill his plan to rule over creation through humanity. So from Abraham, then we see covenants that are made into this same family, right? That's, that's one of the key things that's interesting is that all throughout the Old Testament, we're dealing with one family that just expands and grows over time. Eventually, God makes a covenant with Moses, what we would call the law. Uh, he, he brings about this, this promise that if there's obedience to the law, there will be, there will be um, you know, mercy and, and relationship. And of course, they fail and fail and fail to do that, um, and then David comes along and becomes the king that God chooses to decide to set this Messiah, this future Savior, on the throne of David. So he makes these covenants. Um, and there's obviously a ton we could talk about through the covenants, but that's, um, that's probably good enough for now. Um, that gets us to chapter 4, which is Christ. So you've got creation, you have crisis, you have covenants, and that's really basically the story of the Old Testament in a very broad way. Uh, the Old Testament follows the trajectory of these covenants throughout it. And then you get to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The New Testament begins by clearly identifying Jesus as the promised Savior. He's the promised descendant of Abraham, through whom God will bless the nations. That's Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. He's the son of David who will rule over the, any, an eternal kingdom, which is the fulfillment of God's covenant with David, where there will be uh, one of his sons on the throne forever and ever. Um, unlike Adam, who failed in the garden, and Israel, who failed in the wilderness, uh, Jesus does not fail. He defeats the devil in, in the wilderness himself. He goes into the wilderness is tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, He's hungry, he's fasting, he's tempted, he refuses to give in to sin. He is a new kind of man. And and that's the the whole point, that Jesus is the only one who never fails 
and will never sin. And he, he becomes or is rather the, the spirit anointed king who announces that the kingdom of God has arrived. And Jesus calls people to turn away from their sins and trust in him to be right with God. We see that in Mark 1, 14 and 15. To validate Jesus's message, he begins to perform miracles. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He calms a storm. He feeds thousands of people with almost nothing. He raises people from the dead. And we see that out of a growing number of followers, he becomes very, very famous and popular uh, for a season. But out out of all those people, he selects 12 men to be his apostles, who will then, uh, with him, preach his message of the kingdom. But as Jesus' popularity grows, we see as we read through the gospel stories, so does the opposition to Jesus. The religious leaders, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they begin to plot to how, to how to eliminate the threat that they see Jesus as to their way of life. So Jesus begins to tell his followers uh, that he must suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders, but three days later he'll rise from the dead. So what's interesting is that he says this repeatedly throughout the Gospels, and every time he says it, the disciples just don't, either don't believe it or refuse to believe it. They can't wrap their heads around it. And so he's, he's just blowing up their, their conceptions of what the Messiah would be. They had no idea that a suffering Messiah was the way to salvation. But he told them many times, this shouldn't have been a surprise. Well, we, we, as we continue to read through the story, everything comes to a head when Jesus visits Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. While there, he's arrested, he's beaten, he's sentenced to be crucified, as a political revolutionary. That's at least how they framed him to the Roman authorities. Remember, the Jews were under Roman occupation at this point in history, and they could not uh, execute people uh, according to the law. They had to have the Romans do it for them. And so they basically create a a, a kind of a narrative that Jesus is uh, a king who's trying to usurp Caesar, And that gets him killed as a political revolutionary, essentially. Um, But what the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities meant to do for evil, God meant for good. This is, again, a common theme throughout the Bible. Jesus lives a, a perfect life of obedience. And he also willingly lays down his life as a sacrifice for sin. Through his death on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty we deserve for our sinful rebellion against God. He takes the, the sin and the shame and the brokenness that was brought in through Adam and Eve, has infected all of us, and he takes all of that upon himself on the cross. Thankfully, the story doesn't end with Jesus' death, because on the third day, he rises from the dead. In doing that, he defeats sin, he defeats death, he defeats the devil himself. Jesus' resurrection shows definitively that God has begun to make all things new. The curse that fell on creation when Adam rebelled is being reversed. And Jesus promises his followers that they will receive his Holy Spirit and he will empower them. Okay, so that's chapter four. Creation, crisis, covenants, Christ. Chapter five, the church. So this gets us into after Christ ascends into heaven. Less than two weeks after he ascends into heaven, on the day of Pentecost, it happened. What God had promised through Jesus to his disciples happens. God pours out the Holy Spirit on his disciples. This is recorded in the book of Acts, which is basically a history book of the early church and their their acts and what they did. Peter then goes to preach the good news about Jesus to the uh, thousands of Jews that were gathered in Jerusalem from across the Mediterranean world for the Feast of Pentecost. There there were many, many people from all over the world. They were all Jews, devout Jews, but they represented many different places in the world. Peter preaches the good news. Everybody hears that message in their own native language. The Spirit empowers him uh, to do that. And in response, 3,000 people turn from their sin, trust in Jesus, have their sins forgiven and are baptized. So these, these are the new followers of Jesus 
who form a new community and they share a common life uh, that shows that they are the true people of God. And of course, many of them, of these 3,000, spread out and go back home and uh, bring the gospel, gospel with them to those places. So the church is growing. It's expanding. We read about that as we get into the book of Acts. And we see that from these humble origins, the church spreads. It starts in Jerusalem, and the gospel expands throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, The apostle Paul takes kind of the front stage uh, of this part of the story from Acts chapter, well, he comes in in about Acts chapter 9 or so, um, and then onward through the rest of the book of Acts. Um, But Paul takes the lead largely on on this, at least as far as the focus of the story goes, although all the apostles were doing this work in their own ways throughout their lives. But what we see is that the church, through self-sacrificial love and bold witness for Jesus, these fledgling communities of faith become outposts of God's kingdom, invading this fallen world. And so there's a massive spread of the gospel throughout the world. And this is where uh, we find ourselves today. We are in this chapter of, of the story. Um, the, this is what we continue to do. Jesus dwells with his people, including us, through his Holy Spirit. He's transforming his people, spreading the kingdom to the ends of the earth through missions and through church planting and through doing what we're called to do, which is to make disciples um, by sharing the good news teaching people to obey what he commanded. So because we're joined by, uh, to Christ by faith, we are, what Peter says, is we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So this, this ties us into the Old Testament people of God as well. Like we are all there. God has one people. And he says this in John chapter 10, that there, is, there are sheep outside of that, that initial sheep pen of Israel He's going to bring them into it, and there's going to be one shepherd and one, one flock. This is what we're, we're a part of. We're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. So what we're called to do in this chapter is simply this, to live out our mission uh, as sojourners and exiles, knowing that this world is not our home. Ultimately, our home is in in. Uh, glory with Jesus, and will one day be back here um, as he recreates the world. Uh, but what we're do, called to do in the meantime is live in such a way that even unbelievers glorify God. We're called to pursue lives of purity and holiness in anticipation of Christ's return. And we are to, even in the midst of suffering, um, see the Spirit empower us to set our hope on the day that Christ will transform all creation for his glory and our good. So that's the chapter we're in, chapter 5. But there is one more chapter, and that is yet to come, and this is the chapter consummation. Um, when, when the time finally comes for God to consummate all that he's promised, it, it's going to be an amazing thing. It's going to take our breath away. We don't even know, we don't even know how, how amazing it's going to be. But Christ will return in his glory and when he does, he, he's going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth where God will dwell with his people. This is recorded for us in a couple places at the end of the Bible, uh, as we have it. Revelation 21, and then I have a passage from 22 as well. But Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then we see in Revelation 22, 1 to 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
and the servants will worship him. Uh, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So what we're seeing in those passages is this transformed creation, God dwelling with his people, the curse is lifted, sins are forgiven, God's people is serving him and worshiping him unhindered, God's glory is filling the earth, redeemed humanity reigns over creation forever and ever. And this is our destiny as Christians in Christ. This is an amazing thing. That is yet to happen. We're still awaiting that day, but that is what we have to look forward to. So, okay, that in a nutshell, very briefly, is the story, the true story of the Bible and the world. Um, and that, that, I think, is important for us to have kind of that, that big arc of what is this book about. Um, that's what it's about. Those six kind of big themes are what the scriptures are pointing us to. And all the stories in the Bible are telling that big story. So this reality should transform the way we think. It should begin to transform our desires and what we do. It should shape how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. It should really affect every aspect of our lives, including how we read and apply the Bible. And I think everything has to be governed by this grand story from Genesis to Revelation. So... Where, where we go from here is this. I think there's sometimes a little bit of intimidation when it comes to the Bible because this is a big story. It's grand. It's all-encompassing. It's, it's so big it can maybe feel like it overwhelms us. Um, so I think a lot of us can ask ourselves the question approaching this is uh, how does this affect our lives? What role in the story uh, is is ours to play? And how does the Bible itself fit into all of this? And so throughout these couple of weeks together, I want to answer some of those questions, give you some confidence in reading the Bible, that you can open it and actually maybe not understand everything in it, right? I don't understand everything in it. There's things that are just hard to understand. But, but to have some basic tools um, to give us confidence to tackle this and go, okay, I know we're... I know we're to at least start with this. So let, let's talk about, um, before we get into specifics specifics too much next week, let's talk about another point of introduction I think is important. Um, God has given us the Bible to tell us who he is, what he's done for us, and how we should live. Okay, those are kind of the primary things that the, that the big story we've been talking about gets us to. Who is God? What what has he done for us? And how should we live in light of that? And so what he does, um, amazingly, is he shows us that the Bible is actually his tool to change us and to help us uh, with with lives that demonstrate that we are uh, bearers of his image. And so I think when, when we come to the Bible, we need to recognize, yes, there's one big story. And, and that story is that God created the world and people sinned and rebelled against him and God began to work his will to, to bring us to salvation through these covenants that lead to Christ that then lead to the church and consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. But more specifically, as we get into the Bible, right, God uses this to actually change us individually too. And I think Psalm 19 is a good example of this. Um, it says the law of the Lord is perfect. So when you hear the word law uh, or testimony or precept, there's all these words used, but it's talking about God's written word. So the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. 
Moreover, buy them as your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Just look for a minute at all the things that God's word does for us. It's amazing. It revives the soul. It makes the simple wise. It rejoices our hearts. It enlightens our eyes. It warns us. And that's why David describes God's word as more desirable than gold, sweeter than honey. This is the most precious tool, most precious resource we could have in life. There's nothing else in life that's going to revive the soul or make simple people wise or rejoice our hearts or bring light to our eyes and to warn us. And so we, we, we need to approach the Bible as the, the true story, God's inspired, authoritative true story of his, um, of his plan and his, and his ways of saving us through Jesus. But as we approach the Bible, we get to have the benefits of it as well. David's response later on in Psalm 19 is uh, uh, really amazing. He says, who can discern his errors? So as we approach the Bible, who among us could really discern what's, what's wrong in us? Um, Declare me innocent from hidden faults, he says. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth The meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So simply put, reading God's word reveals to us what our sin is. It calls us to confession and repentance, turning away from it. It prompts a desire in us as God's people to pursue spiritual growth. And so that's, uh, so what we say, think, do and feel reflects the one who is our rock and our redeemer. Um, I also want to emphasize this, that the transformation God uses through his word does not take place purely in isolation. Uh, We hear, read, and study the Bible, not just as individuals, but also as part of a community, as fellow, fellow believers, the church. God has given us one another to help us understand the Bible more, to, to learn from each other, to see how God is working in, in other people's lives through his word. And so we do need each other. We need to hear the word preached. We need it taught. We need it studied in small groups. We need it uh, to be discussed among fellow believers. God uses his word to transform us, but he often does that work in, in the context of community as well so that we become uh, clearer reflections of Jesus. And, I, and so one last thing here. Um, the point of the Bible really does get us to that last point, to make us more like Jesus. The Bible is meant to get us to Jesus. Um, again, going back to the beginning of this, we can, we can approach the Bible as a book of rules, and there are rules, like I said, all right? There's rules for sure, but that if we just bring it down to that, that fundamental thing, we're missing the point. Or if we bring it down to just a fundamental, well, it's just a bunch of stories to teach us how to live our lives and follow these examples we have, positive or negative. Again, we miss the point. The whole point of the Bible is to get to Jesus Christ, who is the only one who truly gives us life now and eternally. And so the Bible is God's tool to change us, but not just merely change our behavior. God wants to change us more fundamentally from the inside out. It, it's not just, okay, slap a Band-Aid on, on this and call it good. It's, no, let's actually bring healing into your life. That's what God wants to do through his word. It's a lifelong project for all of us that God is embarking on. It's a, it is a construction project that's going to take our whole lives to get there. But um, God's doing that work through his word and by the Holy Spirit who lives within us to conform us into the image of Christ. Um, I think that this point uh, of the Bible getting us to Jesus is um, really highlighted well in a particular story in the, in the New Testament. Um, Jesus confronts um, the Pharisees in John chapter 5. And the Pharisees, if you're not familiar with them, were 
we'd call them the PhDs of the Bible and you know back in their day they didn't have PhDs but that was basically what they were they they were the top of the academic ladder they got as high as they could and to become a Pharisee you had to be able to memorize the entire Old Testament and recite it so like think about that the entire Old Testament by memory that's crazy these people were very smart they knew their Bibles probably better than anybody as far as as far as it goes. In fact, most people in that culture were illiterate. They depended on the rabbis and other leaders to read the Bible for them at synagogue. And so here you have the top tier intellectuals of the day. And Jesus confronts them. And he confronts them to point out to them that they, they may know their Bibles better than anyone in, in the form of words, but they don't really know their Bibles at all. Here's the, here's the story. It's in John 5, 39 through 47. It's, he says this, you, this is Jesus speaking, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you not think that I will, oh, do not think I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's just think about what Jesus is saying. This is really gutsy for one thing, and this is one of the reasons why he, he, uh, you know, gets crucified in the end, because he starts to really step on some toes. And uh, these people were the people in power and authority. And the Pharisees were more or less a political party um, that made up uh, a ruling, the ruling class of Israel in, that, in those days. And he's going after them. And these are people who are hanging their hat on knowing the Bible. They, they believe they know it back, backwards and forwards. And in a rote, uh, mechanical way, that's true. They, they could quote chapter and verse. They knew it all as far as that goes. But notice what he says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. Okay, which I think most of us would go, well, yeah. Isn't that why we read the Bible? Because this is how we find out about eternal life. Yeah, uh, except that they're missing the whole way to get that eternal life. They're skipping over the actual one who brings that life because those scriptures bear witness about Jesus, he says at the end of verse 39. They bear witness about me. And then he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then he goes on to talk about how they're seeking glory from one another and getting these pats on the back from each other, but they don't really care about God uh, they don't really love him. Uh, they love each other. They love, or they love the praise that they get from one another. And um, they're, it's basically just living a whole life of one-upsmanship and just trying to be the most impressive. And then he, but then he says this, this zinger at the end in verse forty-five. He says, "I will not accuse you to the Father, uh, Father in heaven, but there is one who does accuse you." He says, "It's Moses." Now, that's a zinger because these guys were acolytes of Moses. They believed they sat on Moses' seat, that they were his, that they, they believed they were the, um, I guess, the inheritors of Moses' authority. And he's like, you know, you know who accuses you? Moses accuses you. Because you've set your hope on Moses, but Moses wrote about me, Jesus says, which is an amazing thing to think about. Because think about it. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. All the books that we skip over at, in our Bible reading plans because we get to Leviticus and we're like, done, I can't do it, um, right? So, but, those, but Jesus himself says that those are the books, the books that Moses wrote that talk about him. And, and if we would believe those writings, we would believe Jesus. And that's, 
Just an amazing thing. So Jesus is plainly saying here that the, the Pharisees missed the whole point of studying the Bible. They were studying the Bible to hold it over people, to be impressive towards one another, to, to have some, some accolades and authority. But the point of the Bible is to get life from Jesus. And that's what they were missing. And so as we approach the Bible, we need to make sure we get to Jesus. And that's where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to try to give you some practical steps for how we can make sure we're getting to Jesus. Um, but, but on a very, uh, just the, the only practical piece of advice I'm going to give you tonight, and we're going to wrap it up, is um, this. You need to approach the scriptures with humility and, and with dependence on the Holy Spirit. Um, you need to pray before you read your Bibles. And so I'm saying this now, and I, I'm not going to emphasize it. I'm not going to beat, beat your head over with that idea throughout the rest of this time, but I'm putting this in front of us because that, that is the most foundational piece of this. We need to get to Jesus, and the only way we get to Jesus is through the Holy Spirit's help. The Spirit of God will give us the insight that we need that we long for, that we hope for as we approach the scriptures. He's the only one who can open up uh, our eyes and give us ears to hear and uh, shine the light into our hearts and minds that we need to understand God's word. We need to pray for help from the spirit of God. And I I can just be a personal attestation to this. I, I preach the Bible every week virtually and teach it a lot. And I study the Bible. Like that's what I, that's what I do. And, and it's, my, it's part of my job, and that, I get that that's not where most, most of you are at, and that's, that's fine. Um, but in my, in my role, it, it becomes very routine, and because I do it so frequently, that the only way I can really approach the scriptures and have anything to pour out for anyone else is, is to pray uh, for the Spirit to help me see what I need to see. And I, I can tell you, for the last 13 years that I've been here, uh, I have prayed this prayer or something like it almost every week, and God comes through all the time. I pray something like, Spirit, help me to see Jesus in this passage. Help me to see him for who he is, for what he's done, for what he calls me to do. That, that's just, you don't have to say those exact words in that formula, but that is essentially um, the, the heart of each prayer that I, that I pray as I approach the Bible. And I would encourage you to do that as well. Um, I think there are certain tools and, and techniques that, that we can use and learn. And in our own strength, we can get to some stuff. We can figure some things out. Uh, but if we're just doing those things in our strength, in our intellect, in our ability, um, it's ultimately going to be futile. It's going to lead to uh, the same place that it led the Pharisees, which was um, to know a lot, but not to love a lot or to have Christ meaningfully in their life. So for us, as we approach the Bible, and I would encourage if you, whether you're reading a, a Bible reading plan through the year, whether you do your devotions a little differently, whenever, whenever it is you open up your Bible, um, I, I would encourage you to start with that. Start with prayer and just ask him to open your eyes, help you see Jesus for who he is, what he's done, and what he's calling you to do through that passage that you read. And, and try to understand. So that's where we'll end it today. Um, and, and next week we'll, we'll start to tackle some more of these techniques and practices and, and start getting you on the path to, to doing this a little more. But I, like I said, you got to build on the foundation. So the story of the Bible, keep that in view as you read it. And then keep in view that God wants to use your journey of studying the scriptures to change you and to make you more like Jesus and get you to him. So... With that, I'll pray for us. If you have any questions, you guys can come up and chat with me afterwards, but um, we'll call it good for tonight. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you for giving us uh, your word that you have actually shown who you are and what you've done uh, for us through it. And God, that you've given us um, eyes to see and hearts to understand. We pray for more of that. We know that all of us are sinful, flawed broken people because of sin. Uh, We know that you came into the world to deal with that sin, 
And so would you help us by your spirit to enlighten our eyes and, and our hearts to your word this week as we go forward. And we thank you and we pray for next week's uh, time that it would be a, a blessing to our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen.